in your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 23, reading all the way through chapter uh, 3, verse 6. Let me take a moment to welcome you again, uh, those of you that are here. If you're new, please don't hesitate to come uh, find me. I would love the chance to get to know you, um, as would all of the elders um, and, uh, and Dave as well. Um, so... Um, uh, as you're turning to Mark chapters 2 and 3, I want to take a moment to remind you of, of what we're going to be celebrating next, next week. You know, uh, Ligon Duncan, Dr. Ligon Duncan will be here to preach uh, next week, and we're going to be celebrating our 25th anniversary. And we say that, 25 years. Um, and we're, it's like a, it's a number. Um, and many of you have not been here all 25 years. Uh, many of you have, have come sort of at various stages in the life of our church. And I, w- I just want you to think about what 25 years means in a spiritual sense. It's 25 years where a whole bunch of sinners get together, and what do we do? We sin a lot against each other. And so what 25 years of the church means is it's 25 years of God's surpassing, amazing grace to sustain the church. And just think about how much grace the Lord has given us over the past 25 years. And that is something we can celebrate. Because 25 years of the church isn't anything that we have done, because we would be all over the place if it was up to us. But it's 25 years of what the Lord has done. And I want to take a moment to just sort of think about that this morning, because we're on the verge of celebrating that anniversary. And um, we should just sort of think about what the Lord has done doing that. Um, But now, let's sort of turn our attention to the Word. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, when, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, We come before you this morning uh, of people that are distracted, 
uh, that are anxious, that are tired. Lord, we need uh, the rest of your Sabbath. Lord, as we look at this passage, we ask that this time would uh, not be a time where we just sit here and listen, but that we'd be changed by your spirit. Lord, we ask that you would uh, work in us mightily, that we might know you, know the wonder of your gospel, and be changed by it, that we might rest in the security that you provide in your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, organic chemistry, that's where we're starting this morning. It's often the bane of sort of pre-med students. Each year it crushes hopes and dreams of thousands of college students that are just hoping to become doctors. And it crushed my uh, long-held dream of becoming a pediatrician uh, in the spring of 2005. Um, This came at the chagrin of my father, who is an organic chemistry professor at WVU. Um, Surprise, surprise. Um, And each year, My father teaches hundreds, maybe even thousands of students organic chemistry, and he tells them the same thing every year right up front at the beginning of every semester. He says, don't bother trying to memorize everything. You can't. You've got to learn the concepts underneath the details to sort of really understand and know organic chemistry. And it's there in the theory, in the concepts, that you'll find the beauty of organic chemistry and learn to love it. And it's there where my father gets to see the handiwork of God in a way, in the way things all sort of fit together and uh, fit together beautifully. Well, I was skeptical, to say the least. I couldn't see how it possibly could be beautiful. I mean, it either worked or you didn't. You sort of throw some chemicals in here and then poof, it comes out this other way and you're like, great, awesome. I mean, honestly, I think as my dad listens to the sermon later, he's going to just be cringing that I describe chemistry as pouring some stuff into some other stuff to make some new stuff. Anyways, at the end of the day, I didn't think that it was something to be admired. It was something, rather, to be overcome through sort of sheer force of will. I was going to conquer organic chemistry, and then I was going to go and leave it in the dust as I became a hotshot doctor who saved lives and didn't even think about organic chemistry. That's the way sort of I approached organic chemistry. It's sort of a road, like a bump in the road. Well, you can guess how that turned out because I'm up here and not a doctor, right? <laughs> um, naturally, my father was right. I got trampled by organic chemistry that semester. I, as I sort of buckled under the sheer volume of details that I had to memorize. I barely managed a C-plus that second semester um, and sort of really developed this distaste for the chem lab as well as this giant, thick organic chemistry textbook. Um, and, and the reason why was because I was essentially trying to and wanting to learn in detail the letter of the laws of chemistry so that I could master it. But there was just too much. And I bet my father, as I was doing this in the, sum, in the spring of 2005, he was, I can just see him shaking his head at home because he knew not just that I was going to get trampled, but also that I was missing the beauty of the creation, that I was missing just the joy that organic chemistry had brought him. 
And I was missing the beauty of, what, of how God had put everything together. And because of that, because I was missing all of that, I was approaching his creation as something to be conquered rather than looking for him in it, enjoying it, and worshiping. And guess what? That's exactly what the Pharisees do in our passage this morning. They miss the beauty of the Sabbath. They're so locked into the obedience of the law of the, uh, the law of the Sabbath that they miss the joy that the Sabbath is supposed to bring them. And because they're so intent on keeping the law, they miss enjoying the one who gave him that law for their own good in the first place. So this morning we're going to look at three things, surprise, surprise, that will hopefully change our perspective from one of sort of mechanical obedience to one of joy that then leads to obedience. So first we're going to look at the obedience of the Pharisees, and then we're going to look for the blessing of the Sabbath, and finally we will finish up with the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's start with what this is all about, the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples, as they're walking through, walking along the path, are actually well within their legal rights to do what they did, which is take grain that is not there and then eat it. And it's not what they did that was sort of what caused the Pharisees to get all in a tizzy. It's when they did it. They did it on the Sabbath. You see, the law prohibits work on the Sabbath. But that's all the law says. That's all the fourth commandment says is don't do work on the Sabbath in addition to a whole bunch of other things, right? Um, but the operative word is work. It's just the word work. And now that's far too ambiguous of a word for the Pharisees and likely for us. We want to know exactly what is work. Is this work? Is that work? How far can I do this thing before it becomes work? And so the Pharisees came up with no less than 39 different categories of work that were unlawful to do on the Sabbath. To them, it wasn't like going overboard. It was they just wanted to know in meticulous detail what the law required. And we're, we're like, yeah, totally. I totally understand that. And so for the Pharisees, the disciples aren't just grabbing some food to satisfy their hunger in accordance with a, a, a social provision for the, uh, for the poor and the most vulnerable of society. No, they weren't just grabbing a snack. They're reaping crops. That doesn't really seem to fit, but okay. And in chapter 3, Jesus isn't just healing a man. He's actually promoting a potential business venture, since healers would use their gifts in healing to make money, which can then be construed as work. That's how the Pharisees viewed these two stories, reaping crops and promoting a potential business venture. And all of you, I hope, are thinking, well, that's a stretch, or Jesus, you're accusing Jesus of promoting a business venture. You're, you're saying that he wants to make money by doing this. That's just ridiculous. If you know Jesus at all, that's just flat out ridiculous. But for them, they just, they couldn't get past the letter of the law. And, you know, before we keep going, we need to understand something about the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees often get a bad rap in Christian circles, right? And I get it. 
they're the religious elite that sort of oppose Jesus. And generally, when you go against Jesus, you don't come off very well in the scriptures. But what we need to understand is that the Pharisees didn't just sort of up and appear in a vacuum. They didn't just go, pop, there's Pharisees. But rather, they arose to prominence within the context of God's people and what God's people had experienced. Remember, in the context of this time period, God's people had just endured the last few hundred years reaping the consequences of the sinfulness of their forefathers. We had just finished our time in Jeremiah back in August. And we had spent like 11 to 12 months thinking about just how sinful God's people were. And well, the Pharisees remembered as well. And they decided, wisely I might add, that it would be a good idea to avoid being so sinful ever again. And so in a misguided sort of attempt to avoid transgressing the law as their forefathers had done, they set up their own laws to, around God's law so that you wouldn't even come close to transgressing God's law. And so it's like, here's God's law over here. And then my line is like way over here. So I don't even come close to getting even near that law over there. And so in, in essence, what I know is that if I keep that line over there, I know that I'm keeping this line over here too. And it's not just that I know that I'm keeping this line over here and that line over there, but that you do too. And so there's this sort of concern for externals as well, that, that I'd, I'd look good in addition to being good. But, you know, we're sort of, here's the line over here and there's the line way over there that, that we sort of set up, and you're like, that's completely unreasonable. That's completely ridiculous. But we do it. We do that all the time. We practice these sort of practical personal legalisms all the time. For instance, an alcoholic might refuse to attend parties where alcohol is present because he doesn't want to relapse, because he doesn't even want to get close to the temptation of drunkenness. And so the actual rule is that he not get drunk, right? But his rule is that he's not even going to be in the presence of alcohol so that he knows that he will never actually drink alcohol. And so that rule is reasonable for him. It's not reasonable for him to justify himself as, a, like, I'm a lawkeeper, but it is just reasonable for him to avoid sin. And we do that for a million things in our own personal lives, to avoid temptation, and that's right and holy and good. But the Pharisees obviously take it too far. They're so wrapped up in making sure that they don't transgress the law that they begin to think of themselves as lawkeepers. And, that, and for those of you that have spent a lot of time in the church, that doesn't, that's no surprise. They pride themselves on their law-keeping. If, if you're obsessed with keeping a law you, and you keep it pretty well, you're going to say, oh, I'm pretty good at this. It's a natural thing to think. And so they begin to think of themselves over the years as the antithesis to those lawless, sinful forefathers that they read about in Jeremiah and all the prophets and all the minor prophets and all the things, right, that they read. They're not disobedient. They're obedient. They're good. They're righteous. But the purpose of the law isn't to justify people as law keepers, but to expose them as lawbreakers. 
Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will, uh, will be justified in his sight, through since the law comes knowledge of sin. Through since, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law exposes the sin that dwells in everyone, and so it condemns everyone, bringing them to a place of needing grace through faith. So it's kind of ironic. The, the Pharisees spend a lot of time in the law. They're parsing out all the minutiae to avoid transgressing the law, and they miss the first and primary use of the law. They, like, completely miss the point. And quick aside, there are three, uh, three uses of the law, theologically speaking. The first is to expose evil, to expose sin. The second is to restrain evil or to restrain sin. And the third is to show us what pleases the Lord. And the first, which is to expose evil, is the first and most common and most primary function of the law. It's meant to reveal sin. The, the Bible is said to be a mirror that, hold, that you hold up to yourself to see what you're actually like. It reveals who you truly are. And what it reveals is an ugly, ugly sinner. And the law is loving in that way. It's loving in that it forces you to see the truth of yourself, that you are not any good. It would be loveless, in fact, to leave you ignorant in your sin. And the truth that you're not any good is meant to drive you to Christ, to God, asking in mercy, for mercy and grace that you don't deserve, and that you're in fact desperate for. You know, it also drives you to this truth that we've been running from since the garden. The truth that, in fact, we need God, that we were made to need God, and that we actually can't do this ourselves. This isn't a new sort of struggle for us. This goes way back to Genesis 3. And on top of it all, the Pharisees' approach to the law isn't really human. And we instinctively know this. We know this, that we're not made to be so rigid, so consumed with the fear of breaking the law. We instinctively sense the burden that the law is when we approach it this way. And we instinctively sense that living life the way the Pharisees want us to live it isn't really living at all. And it takes all the joy out of life. We're not mechanical obedience robots, so to speak, who only care about the programming of the law. We're not meant for that kind of obedience. We're meant for obedience, but not that kind. And so you see the Pharisees not only missed the main point of the law, they also missed the intent of this particular law as well, which brings us to the blessing of the Sabbath. When we talk about the Sabbath, we could get into the details of what we should or shouldn't do, you know, what, what constitutes work or doesn't constitute work. But I want to skip over all of that and try to get a sense of why God gave us the Sabbath in the first place. And I think we get a few clues right here in, these, in, this, in this passage. You see in chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus notes that the Sabbath isn't just for abstaining from work, which is how sort of the Pharisees saw it. There are some things that fit into the Sabbath purpose that we ought to do as well. And so listen to chapter 3, verse 4. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to, or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. 
And then in chapter 2, verses 25 to 26, we also see that the law is something that sometimes is trumped by the, peop- uh, by the needs of the people. So David did what was ceremonially unlawful because of his dire need to eat. And so the letter of the ceremonial law is subordinate at times to the intent of it. And that's possible because the ceremonial law isn't intended to be timeless. It's intended to be fulfilled in the Messiah, to point to the one who is going to save us. It's intended to show our need for redemption that would be accomplished in a Savior who would restore us to the way that we were meant to be, which is acceptable and intimate with God himself. And when we see that the Sabbath is for doing good, for saving life, and subordinate to the needs of the people it was given to, we can see that the law was primarily given as a blessing. That the Sabbath law was given primarily as a blessing. And it was not just any blessing. It was a blessing, surprise, surprise, for those who receive it. It was meant to be not a simple command to be obeyed at all costs, but in fact a blessing. And so in Luke 14, Jesus points out that the Sabbath law against work had exceptions, even for the Pharisees. It wasn't sort of this black and white, cut and dried, one-size-fit-all law that you had to follow no matter what. He said in Luke 14, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull them out? And so, of course, the ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath, which is a prohibit prohibit, prohibition, that's the word, prohibition against work is subordinate to the needs of man, to life and to life itself. Of course it's subordinate to that. What else is the law there for but to promote life? And so it makes sense that Jesus says in verse 27 of chapter 2 that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So So we know that the Sabbath was meant to bless us and not to burden us, which begs the question, well, how does the Sabbath actually bless us? And I think the Sabbath blesses us in two ways, two big ways in keeping with the sort of negative elements and the positive elements of it. First, surprise, it restrains us from our work. It restrains our impulses to secure ourselves through our own efforts and our own work. That's the negative. We are to not work. You know, ever since the fall, man has been wildly insecure, wildly insecure. The curse has put us uh, at odds with, with creation, and we've no, we no longer have a right relationship with the Lord. And so the question is, who is then going to look out for us knowing that we only deserve wrath from God? If we know that God is not going to take care of us because all we deserve from him is wrath, who's going to take care of us? The answer is no one except for ourselves. And so we work, and we work really, 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 really hard. And why do we work? We work to secure ourselves. We work to secure our reputations with others. We work to secure our financial situations. We work to secure the futures of our children. And we all know that sort of rat race that is life, especially that life in this area. And it's it's an approach to life that says it's up to you to make yourself secure. It's up to you to get all the things in life that you want. And yet, even when we get it, It's not much security at all. 
because it can all be wiped away in an instant. And so the Sabbath, by rule, keeps us from running ourselves ragged in the pursuit of security and happiness that actually doesn't provide security and happiness. It forces us to stop working, to stop chasing our own self-righteousness and in sort of justifying ourselves. It, stops, it, it forces us to stop practicing that pride that says that we can actually do it. Because we practice that a lot. It forces us, in fact, to trust the Lord for that one day. And that's the first way that the Sabbath blesses us. It clears the way for us to receive the second way that the Sabbath blesses us. And the second way is much more positive. It blesses us by calling us to do something. We're not not working just for the sake of not working. We're not just simply being idle for the sake of being idle, for taking a break. We're not working for a reason. We're not working so that we can consider God and his handiwork, just like God did at the creation. Think back to Genesis 2 when we see the first Sabbath. What was God doing on that first day of rest? What was he doing? He, he was blessing the creation. He was making the day holy. And he was resting. He wasn't idle. Rather, he was looking out upon the things that he had just created. And he was enjoying it. He was considering the works of his hands and the fact that it was all very good. And that's what we're to do. We can use sort of those three things, the blessing, the making it holy, and the resting as a framework of how we are to do the Sabbath. And so the first, he has blessed it. And so we can consider the works of God's hands, all the ways that God has blessed us, which should lead us to joy because we have an abundance in, of blessings. In Ephesians, it says that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, that he has given us all things that are good. And that joy leads to worship. And that worship helps make this day holy in that we are setting it apart as a day for worship, specifically for worship. Sure, we're supposed to be worshiping the Lord in all that we do the other six days of the week, but this is different. Sunday morning worship, Sunday worship is different in that we are taking the time to spend the whole day thinking and considering about the way in which the Lord has blessed us, the way in which the Lord is worthy, the way in which the Lord is good. And so that is special and different and holy. And then we rest, which goes back to the work prohibition. We're to do all that we can in the other six days to set ourselves up for a true day of rest. We're to take a break from our labors and rest. And now before we move on, I'd like to say that if you're anything like me, you probably don't set yourself up well to do the Sabbath. I find that I have to train my mind to pay attention to the Lord during the sermon, during the service, in fact. I often sit right over there, and I get lost thinking while the preacher is preaching about all the things that I have planned for today. And sure, they might not be job-related things, right? But they're certainly distracting. I've got to get lunch for the family, put the kids down. Um, 
oh, I forgot, we don't have any more diapers, so I need to go run to the store and get that. And there's laundry to do, and I'm out of shorts because we're, they're all dirty, so I've got to do a load of darks. And uh, my room is a giant, horribly unorganized mess, and so we need to organize that. And I would like to alphabetize all of my books on my shelves, and then there's that game that I wanted to, to, to play, and then there's that book that I wanted to read, and it goes on and on and on, and guess what? What am I not thinking about anymore? I'm certainly not thinking about the Lord, okay? And I'm sitting there completely missing, wait, what is Frank talking about again? Why are we talking about video games and books and what, where did, how did we get there? And why is that? It's because my giant to-do list is ever-present in my mind. And I haven't set myself up well to stop and say, that doesn't matter today. I don't have to do that today. I can think about the Lord. And what about you students? Especially in college, you college students, okay? How does, how does Sunday look different than the rest of your, your week? When it was me in college, my Sundays didn't look very much different than any of the other days of the week. Sure, I went to church in the morning, but that was quickly forgotten by the time I was done with lunch because I had problem sets to do, readings to read, papers to write, tests to prepare for. And so guess what? It looked like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and the middle of the night as well, right? That's not really a Sabbath. We're not really resting. We're not considering the Lord in a way that, refi- that restores our soul. And you see, the Sabbath is really meant to be restorative. And that word restorative is important. Because it's, that word means to reset, to go back to a state where we are in line with the way that we ought to be. We were meant to live focused on God. We were meant to live not for ourselves. And so the Sabbath reorients us. It transforms us. It changes us, like Mark told us a little earlier. It's meant to renew us and reclaim us from the idolatry of this world. For six days, we work hard. And in those six days, we easily forget the truths that sustain us and give us life. And so we need the Sabbath to call us back to that life, to change us back into God people instead of me people. And surprise, I can't do that by myself. I need someone to help me, to change me, to bring me back to life, which brings us to the one who gives us that life, the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, these two stories hinge on how we understand Mark uh, 2.28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Surely it means that he has authority over it, and that's what threatened the Pharisees. They thought that this self-declared, with this self-declared authority, he would come for their positions, their titles, their power, their influence, and their security. But I think it means something more than just the fact that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Because Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, as in he's the source of it, as in he's the one who came up with the idea, as in he's the one who at the creation made all things and then rested the seventh day. He's the one from whom Sabbath actually flows. 
Remember in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus is the source of rest. He is our rest in the gospel. And it all rests, pardon the pun, on this truth. In the gospel, in Christ, we have true rest. We are so totally secure in him that all of our cares and our worries are silenced. I don't have to sit over here and think about the laundry because Jesus has has me covered. I don't have to think about any of the things that I think about on Sunday that are not about Jesus because Jesus has me covered. But how does that work? Because I'm not sitting over there like resting in Jesus. I'm sitting over there with cares and worries and concerns. And I'd love to have rest for my soul, but I'm not. I'm a ball of anxiety here. And here it is. Jesus gives us the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's what makes it well with my soul. And we're going to sing that in just a bit. You see, we're no longer sinners deserving of wrath, but now we are sons and daughters of the Most High. We are secure in Christ yesterday, today, and forever. We have everything we could possibly need, and so we can be satisfied. And so we're going to wrap up with... um, this idea of satisfaction, being satisfied in Christ. And Tim Keller sort of helps us with this. He, he also preached a sermon on this, and he uses this language of satisfaction. And, he, and I'm going to paraphrase him to sort of wrap up. And he says, you can only be done with something when you're totally satisfied with it. That's the only time when you can truly walk away from a task or something that you're working on, is when you're totally satisfied with where it's at. And we're never satisfied with life because it's never enough. And that's why we work so hard. But Jesus has lived a life that has satisfied, that has satisfied not only himself, but also the highest of standards. He has lived the life that you should have lived, but don't. He has lived the life that you could only possibly dream of, but you don't. And he has also died the death that you so richly deserve and are terrified of at the same time. But now, it's finished. Those two words on the cross, it is finished. Well, three words, it is finished. Is the source of our rest. It's finished. It's done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. That's where life comes from. He has satisfied God himself, and so we are now satisfied because we are united with him. We are one with him. And so now we can really, truly rest because we know and have the satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God the Father. And as we come and prepare to come, to the Lord's table. 
I want to ask if you've, if you've come to rest in Christ. You not, might not be good at it, but have you experienced his rest? Do you look to him to provide you a rest that almost defies exp- explanation? If not, today is that day. Put your trust in him and you will feel that rest. You will experience that rest, if only a little bit. And then your whole life will be learning how to experience that rest just a little bit more and a little bit more each day. And so I invite you to come and find rest in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these passages that reveal to us the wonder of your Sabbath, the rest that we have in you, that we're not to approach the Sabbath as a rule that we have to keep, but a blessing from you, a joy that saves us from ourselves, that saves us from having from the work that we do so much each week, that we might come to you, behold the works of your hands, which is no less than the gospel. The wonder of your son dying on a cross for me and being risen from the dead. Lord, what a glorious truth that is. What a truth we can rest in that we are secure in you. Lord, I don't believe that most days, but I want to. Lord, would you transform me? Would you transform each in this room that they might turn from their rat race and see the rest that they have already in you? Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Here now, every month, every time we take communion, we read these words to remind us. Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I'm going to ask Ron to come back up and explain that further. Hello again, uh, my name is Ron, um, and as a member of the session, I'm here to invite all those who have called on the name of the Lord to come to his table. Now, um, this is his table, it's not the table of uh, Potomac Hills, and it's not the table of the PCA, uh, it's a table for all those who have professed the name of Jesus, and who are members of an evangelical church or seeking membership. Now, Dave asked me to come up to give words for sinners, and Paul instructs us that in Romans that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the key issue here is what have we done with our sin? So I, I'm reminded of um, Dr. Dave's sermon last week, and we talked about this in our shepherd group, or on, in our community group the, uh, the other day. Um, I thought the question that, that Dr. Dave boiled the sermon down to was so uh, clear. It's a question that everybody, we all, all humans have to um, wrestle with is, who is Jesus? And those who have wrestled with that and have come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world, and that through him we can be saved. This table is for all those who have come to that conclusion. We are still with sin and so we still have to deal with that sin, even those of us who are uh, believers. So um, I call on all of us to uh, come before the Lord and prepare uh, to repent uh, and then come. But if you have not answered that question, who is Jesus? or you've answered it and decided he's not who he says he is, then I would ask that you uh, pass by the elements. Uh, but I ask that you come and, and pray with, have uh, the deacons, the elders pray with you. So this table is for all who have called on the name of the Lord, so come. Ron has called us to examine ourselves and to repent, so let's do that privately first, and then we have a responsive public confession. So take a few moments. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all night long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be reminded of your forgiveness, your pardon from Colossians 1. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So professing our faith together, let's read Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I want to invite the elders, teaching and ruling elders and deacons to come the elements that we are about to take. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you, and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to the disciples, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift that is the communion supper, your supper, that just as the Sabbath invites us to look back at creation and your resting, and then to look to the cross that Jesus said it is finished so we don't have to strive to work and earn our salvation, and to the present to see that you call us to observe the Sabbath, and then to the future we will be called to our Sabbath rest. Lord, just as we look there, we look to the Lord's Supper and are reminded of Christ's crucifixion, that his body was broken on the cross, his cross, his blood was shed for us.
and we partake of it today and often, monthly, together as a body to be strengthened, to be spiritually fed. And it points us to eternity when we will celebrate the Lamb's feast in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth with you. So thank you that we tangibly taste what was your sacrifice and are reminded and called back to reflect on the gospel, the deep truths of the gospel. Thank you for that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've not taken communion with us before, the, you can see that the auditorium is uh, broken into two halves, and so the top half, you'll just go along there, the bottom half. So we start on your left at the front and move back, and then the right side will come down as well. And so you're going to come. Uh, there is uh, gluten-free bread in addition to the plain loaf, and then it's all juice. There's no wondering if it's wine or grape juice, where you drink. Um, so let them know if you need gluten-free bread. You'll take the elements, and then you'll come and pray with the person, the elder or deacon farthest down who's available to pray with you and your family. And as, after you come through, if you'll return to your seats and meditate on what the Lord's done, if you need a place to talk or take the kids, go out in the hallway, and then we'll all close together. So with those instructions, come, partake of what the Jude. Now hear the Lord's blessing upon you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We'll see you next week.